Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Proback. And we have the pleasure of discussing a short story in this episode. It is a Poirot short story. What are we discussing today, Catherine? We are covering The King of Clubs. Guess where it was first published, Kemper? Well, this is an extremely early Poirot, so I'm going to hazard a guess that it was first published in The Sketch. It was in March of 1923, so very early. This is, in fact, the third Poirot short story Mm -hmm. published. It is, and it was published under the title The Adventure of the King of Clubs. Totally different. (laughs) I know, it's so different. Then it got collected in the U.S. in that book we've talked about before, The Underdog and Other Stories in 1951. And then in both the U.S. and the U.K. in Poirot's early cases in 1974. I love an early Poirot, as you all know, and this one has so many of the tricks of the trade that we have come to know and love. So let's get right into it. Uh, Our victim is one Henry Reedburn, a theater impresario, who is found bashed in the head. He's got a big old hole in his head, not from a gun. So we really only have one suspect, and it's Valerie Sinclair, who's a world-famous dancer of sort of mysterious origins. She's exotically beautiful. And yeah, she's found by the neighbors screaming about murder with blood on her dress. Sounds suspicious to me. Yep, it does. So, world as it appears to be, Kemper. (laughs) Well, where would you guess that this early Poirot short story would begin? (laughs) (laughs) I would like my days to begin like this. I really would too. I mean, this is one of those things where we're poking fun oh so gently at Christy for starting these stories the same way every single time, but I adore it. Um, I would uh, probably be pretty upset if this story did not begin with Poirot and Hastings, roomies as they are in these early stories, sitting around at the breakfast table. Hastings has got his paper out. Poirot is making some snide, snarky comments to, you know, what Hastings says. Hastings is, as usual, interrupting Poirot in his own sort of morning ritual. And he tells him about an outrageous story that he's just read in the paper, The Daily Newsmonger. Sounds like a rag, if ever there was one. (laughs) And, of course, the story that he's read is about the murder of Henry Reedburn, because whenever Hastings reads a story in the newspaper, it is significant. Right. And so he's, you know, going on and on while Poirot doesn't appear to be paying attention because apparently this man was bashed over the head in his home at Mondesir. 
And he was discovered by this very famous dancer, Valerie Sinclair, who ran through the yard then to the neighboring house, um, which is owned and inhabited by the Oglander family. Mother, father, a son, and a daughter. They're all adults. They're this thoroughly boring and respectable English family. And they were thoroughly boringly playing bridge as a family when Valerie apparently burst through these French doors for help, cried murder, and passed out. Very dramatic, but then she is given to theatrics being a dramatic dancer herself so right poirot knows all this already because unbeknownst to hastings he has already been contacted by prince paul of morania which Mm. seems to be one of these vaguely eastern european fake countries that christie makes up from time to time i did appreciate that there was reference made to quote the famous morenberg mouth which has to be a sort of fictional analog to the Habsburg chin slash nose. Yeah, (laughs) I know. So, you know, they're European royalty here. Although in exile. Yes, but in exile, as the best royalty is these days, you know. Right. In the the 20s. (laughs) And he has contacted Poirot because he wants his assistance. You see... Prince Paul is in love with Valerie, and he is afraid for her. Poirot is a little surprised by that. You know, Christie writes, Poirot sat up in his chair and his eyes opened. But the prince says that he was not the first of his family to make a morganatic marriage. That, of course, being a marriage, uh, the issue of which will not inherit any titles. And he says, you know, he's very quick to point out that Valerie is actually descended from a Russian grand duchess. There are a lot of stories as to who her descendants might be, but um, he, of course, chooses to believe the one that gives her great nobility. If we're readers of Christie at this point, we'll, we should be raising an eyebrow and predicting that by the end of the story, we will find out that Valerie is definitely not <laughs> the daughter of a Russian grand duchess, but we're firmly in Christie territory here. And um, because he is so in love with Valerie, he, of course, is really worried that she is now being suspected of murder, especially because she had seen a tarot card reader a few days before this whole incident, which had shown her the king of clubs. The tarot card reader said to Valerie, beware, there is a man who holds you in his power. You fear him. You are in great danger through him. You know whom I mean. And Valerie says, yes. And then the last words of Zara, the card reader, were, beware of the king of clubs. Danger threatens you. The man, Reedburn, let us note, is a theater impresario. So in a way, he kind of is a king of clubs, mm-hmm. right? Sure. So there's, you know, interesting wordplay already going on there. And yeah, she just seems to be in a really bad place. And it seems to be the case that this uh, Henry Reedburn was just obsessed with Valerie and that she was scared by him. And he had made overtures to her that were untoward and unwanted since she, of course, is in love with Prince Paul. And now something bad has happened and she's going to be blamed for it. And he wants to figure a way out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Poro, he's sentimental. 
as we know. And he goes to Mon Desir, where the body um, has been removed from the library before they get there. Hastings is a bit irked by this. I don't know if it's because Hastings is a looky-loo and wants to see the body. <laughs> there is a little bit of a sense of that. He wants his body in the library, right? I know he he does want the body <laughs> in the library, but Poirot doesn't particularly seem to care. So the body was found sort of by... There, there are two sets of French doors, right? And it's found by the ones that go to the garden, which are which faces the Oglander's house. There's been no obvious sign of a weapon. So Poirot speaks to the doctor, who tells him the victim, again, was bruised in the forehead. I think wounded in the, yeah. in the front of the head. Mm-hmm. In the Suchet adaptation, which we'll get to, he was bruised in the front of the head. But here they say there were two wounds, one between the eyes and the other, the fatal one, on the back of the head. Yeah, it's not quite specified what the one on the front is. What is specified is that the one on the back of the head was, like, gruesome. Yeah. Poirot looks, there's, like, a marble lion. And Poirot's like, oh, could he have just fallen on that? And they're like, there's no blood. There would be a lot of blood. Poirot asked if a woman could have done it. And the doctor says there's no plausible way that a woman could have hit him in that position over the back of the head with that much force, which is like, seems a little bit patronizing. (laughs) Indeed. Where do they go next, Kemper? Well, next, they, of course, go Shay Oglander. So they follow in her steps, and they go to the Oglander's house from Mon Desir. And uh, nothing has been changed in the drawing room where Valerie stumbled in. And there's this bridge game that was left abandoned at the table. They're you know explicitly told that nothing's been touched here. They are uh, held off from seeing Valerie. She's just taken to her bed. But Poirot mentions that he's been sent by the prince. And that gets them access uh, right quick (laughs) to Valerie, who is apparently not quite in as much of uh, debilitating shock as she seemed to be before then. You know, again, a little dramatic here. So when they go up to see Valerie, they're taken by Miss Oglander. She, you know, shows them into Valerie's bedroom. And Hastings notes the contrast between these two women, and it strikes him immediately. And I'm very proud of myself that I actually underlined this section of the text. Uh, And this is what he says. The contrast between the two women struck me at once, the more so as in actual features and coloring, they were not unalike. But oh, the difference. Not a look, not a gesture of Valerie Sinclair's, but expressed drama, et cetera, et cetera. And then he just just goes on to talk about how dramatic she is, right? And she has such airs about her. But, you know, perhaps it's significant that the features and coloring of Miss Oglander and Valerie Sinclair are very similar. I don't know. Yeah, just maybe. Maybe maybe in a short story, this might be important. And so Valerie herself then tells Poirot the story that they all know and that she says that a tramp was hiding behind the drapes. That old chestnut, apparently. (laughs) Apparently so. He killed uh, Reedburn and she ran for help. So cool. Sure. That's her story and she's sticking to it. (laughs) She is. 
And so they really aren't getting any more information from her. And they go back downstairs because also Paro would like to talk to Mrs. Oglander. Well, they actually, what's funny is that they go downstairs and then it is Mrs. Oglander who asks them, because they're about to leave, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mrs. Oglander says, oh, could you actually send word through the servant? Could you wait? Because I want to have a word with you. So they go back to the drawing room and have to wait. And that's where something rather significant happens, doesn't it? Well, yeah, because again, there's that bridge game there that they have Mm -hmm. seen when they come in and which was apparently interrupted, right, by Mm -hmm. um, this sort of desperate dancer running through the room and disrupting their game. And Poirot is like picking up the various cards in the game of bridge. Right, like... On the table, all of the cards are spread out. So all the cards they've been Mm -hmm. playing with are spread out. And he notices that there's a card missing. Could we guess which card is missing from those that have been played on the table? Might it be the King of Clubs? It just might be the King of Clubs. He does a little sleight of hand and that he slips that card into his pocket. And we don't really learn this until later because he's a, he's able to shock and awe Hastings with this, right? But mm-hmm. he he looks for the missing card and he notices that it's it's in the pack that the card was taken from, like the box that the cards are in when they're not being played. The King of Clubs was just sitting there, which means it had never been played. Right. But they had apparently been playing that bridge game because of the hands that he can see laid out. It had been made to look like they'd been playing that bridge game for some time. Well, they said uh, they had played several rubbers. Yes. We should also note that Poirot and Hastings go back to Mont Desir where they realize that it's the other French door that also has a marble lion that does have a bloodstain. Let's just jump right into our first clue here, because in some ways it's a meta clue, which references two different Christie's that we've already covered. So I'm not even going to say skip ahead if you haven't read Cards on the Table, because most people, when they just talk about Cards on the Table, acknowledge the fact that the solution relies on bridge (laughs) and the rules of bridge. And we don't have to get any more specific than that. But we've seen Christie use bridge as a means of obfuscation and solution before and resolution before. So perhaps when we're given this tableau of a, of a bridge game uh, interrupted, we should already be focusing on that. The other, uh, and this one you should fast forward about 30 seconds if you haven't read it yet, but on a Patreon episode, we covered Spider's Web the original play. Mm -hmm. And this exact clue was recycled actually in Spider's Web because this story came first, but uh, in Spider's Web... It came before Cards on the Table too. Yes, that's true. In Spider's Web, we had the specific clue of a playing card being found on the floor when there were a cast of characters who were making up an alibi, essentially. They were fabricating an alibi and saying that they were playing bridge. And the way that the inspector was able to completely puncture (laughs) that alibi was by noting that you had a card missing because you can't play bridge if you only have 51 out of 52 cards. So the deduction we should draw from the fact that Poirot found this king of club in the box that the cards belong in is that no one was ever playing any bridge. That's a total fabrication. So there must be more going on here than meets the eye. Outside of the meta clue, you know, there's the big clue, the most significant clue that we already pretty much mentioned. It's heredity. That is a Christie favorite. So if a bunch of people in the same story look alike, that's likely not to be a coincidence. 
And the deduction there is who in this story looks alike. Well, we've already been told who in this story looks alike. So, gee, I wonder. Might the worldly Valerie Sinclair actually be an Oglander? Just possibly. I mean, because also keep in mind, and it is sort of a related clue, that if you have a character who has a mysterious background, which we're told that she does, that the various stories, right, were as uh, Kemper, you already mentioned that she was like actually the se- a secret member of the Russian nobility. Um, it's also possible that she was like a working Irish girl. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, we're told that very early on. And if you're told that about a character in a Christie, you could kind of assume that maybe there's a reason for the subterfuge about her background. We're sort of put on notice from the beginning that Valerie Sinclair is going to be from modest origins. It's actually kind of nice because what Christie does in the beginning is present us with two extremes, right? One is mm-hmm. that I think she's the daughter of a charwoman. Mm-hmm. And the other is that she's the daughter of a duchess. What it turns out is that she's actually the daughter of a respectable middle-class family, uh, right. which is still not elevated enough for Prince Paul, who we can see why she hasn't really been telling him that. But the truth is not yeah. as extreme. And also, we should be clear, we mean, we mean the British sense of middle-class. We don't mean sure. the American sense. So, Of course, as we yeah. saw it, as we can see in the story, her Oglanders yeah. are very much British middle class. And by the way, another little, I think, corollary clue to the playing card clue, which is a nice little supporting clue, is that when Poirot is talking to Miss Oglander and then Mrs. Oglander, mm-hmm. they contradict each other as to where they were seated during right. bridge. And that's mm-hmm. also, that's very Christie and very Poirot specifically that he always talks about how if you just get people to talk, they slip up eventually. And even in this short story, this rather short, short story, they managed to do that. <laughs> and it's just extra evidence for the fact that that bridge game could never have happened. So... What actually happened is that Valerie was desperate because she was being harassed and threatened by Henry Reedburn essentially to have sex with him. I mean, it's it's not explicitly spelled out in the story, but the implication is quite clear. Oh, it's pretty heavily made clear. She all but says it without saying it. Right. It's again, I mean, often in these stories, they go dark. This man was clearly pursuing her in a physical way and wanted to have his way with her, and she did not want to do that. He's a theater impresario, she's a dancer, and she was feeling pressured and threatened by him and extremely uncomfortable with the whole thing. She's not yet married. So what she did, actually, which really makes a whole lot of sense, given, you know, once we know that, and the fact that she has family, is that she took the most able-bodied male member of her family to go over there and essentially tell him to back off, and that would be her brother. Poirot is not certain if it was the father or the brother, but he makes an educated guess that it was the brother just because he is the younger and more fit one, Mm -hmm. and he is correct about that. So she went over there with Mr. Oglander Jr., and he punched Henry Reedburn, as one does when one is telling a dirty old man to back off his sister. Right. Mr. Reedburn fell on that lion, the lion that was next to the window that was not looking out on the garden that connected to mm-hmm. Daisy Mead, the mm-hmm. Oglander's residence. So it was the other lion and uh, looking out at the drive area, looking out on the drive where there were other houses that were actually much closer than Daisy Mead. Right. And that was unfortunate because 
what Valerie had to do was tell a story by which she looked out the window. You know, the first house she saw is the one that she ran to because she couldn't be directly connected with Daisy Bead because she didn't want to implicate her family. So that's why they moved the body and they moved the body to the other window enclosure with the lion that did not have a stain on it. Not completely sure why they couldn't successfully remove that blood stain off of the lion, but well, they don't have, have they, so it, there's an implication early on with the servants that they'd heard them. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have a lot of time either. And this whole thing, I mean, they didn't go there with the intention of murdering no, Mr. Reedburn. She went they just wanted to intimidate to, him. To intimidate him. Yeah. yeah like yeah. it was, I mean, it was manslaughter, I guess. Right. So they panicked. I mean, it's it's actually quite believable. They just moved the body and then they concocted this story. They obviously ran back to the family house. They laid out the bridge game, accidentally leaving one card in the box. And then they made up that dramatic story of Valerie Sinclair, this crazy dancer who has nothing to do with them, respectable, you know, middle class family that they are, um, wandering into their drawing room. It's funny, at the end, Prower notes, the interesting thing is that Valerie is ashamed of her family, and her family is ashamed of her. (laughs) Nevertheless, in a moment of peril, she turned to her brother for help, and when things went wrong, they all hung together in a remarkable way. Family strength is a marvelous thing. They can all act, that family. That is where Valerie gets her histrionic talent from. I, like Prince Paul, believe in heredity. And that's a nice sort of uh, circling back to this whole notion of heredity, because he's obviously not going to clue Prince Paul into Valerie's true heredity. But her family came through in a pinch, and they're mutually protecting each other. Yeah, and guess what Poro does? He decides that, oh yeah, a tramp did it. Well, because he says, I doubt if that tramp will ever be found. I hope there's not some poor tramp that's going to have to take the fall for this. The story also ends with Poirot saying, also to convey my compliments to Zara, a curious coincidence that I think I shall call this little affair the adventure of the King of Clubs. What do you think, my friend? Um, Why does it have to be a coincidence? I think Zara is not getting the credit she deserves. She said, beware the King of Clubs. That's a good psychic. I mean, isn't it that there was no psychic? What do you mean? Maybe you can clarify this. I thought that Valerie told Prince Paul after the fact that she'd gone to the psychic. Well, it looks like Prince Paul, though, was in the um, consultation itself with Zara. Oh, okay. Prince Paul says, you know Zara, the clairvoyant? And Poirot replies, no. And then Prince Paul says, she is wonderful. You should consult her sometime. Valerie and I went to see her last week. She read the cards for us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think she exists unless she drugged him and induced a hallucination. <laughs> True. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I thought like it was, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess Zara really is terrific then. Right? I mean, and, then well, I, clearly, like, and then clearly came up with an international clothing chain. She amassed a fortune with her dead-on psychic predictions and then, you know, started a worldwide clothing chain, the Coco Chanel of uh, Fast Fashion. (laughs) No, I, um, you know, the story is a little simple, I would say, but you know what? It makes sense. 
It makes sense. And I appreciate the playing card clue. Um, it was clever when it appeared in spider's web, the bridge playing business is very pleasingly clever in cards on the table. And, you know, it's in keeping with these sort of golden age miniature puzzles. I quite appreciate it. I also, by the way, was wondering the king of clubs, it actually could potentially make a lot of sense that the king of clubs would be the card that's left in the container in which you keep your cards. If you're ordering your cards before you put them away, as some people do, and you know, you do aces low and you kind of put your suits in a certain order. And I used to always personally order my suits, diamonds, hearts, spades, clubs. I was actually very OCD about it. And I went through a phase when I was probably 10 or 11, right around when I started reading Christie, actually, where I did a lot of card playing. It made me so happy and satisfied to put the cards in order, like before I, I put them back. And I think that I used to always do aces high. So the ace of clubs was probably mm-hmm. the card at the bottom. But it's, you know, believable that the king of clubs, for a very good reason, could also be the card that's left in the container. I I wonder if that crossed her mind. That's not the typical ordering of suits, though. Most people, if they're going to order their suits, do it alphabetically. I did look into this, Catherine. I have no doubt, Kemper, that you looked into it. Um, I I never put cards back in order because then I just felt like it just took more shuffling. Yeah, it's an it's a totally pointless OCD thing to do. There are certain card games, I mean, like solitaire, even like you're going to end up in certain versions of it. You'll end up with the suits having to match, so then you end up naturally. Or hearts, which one is it that ends up with the suits in the correct stack? Oh, yeah. Well, solitaire, it'll it'll alternate, right? But it will right. at least be in some sort of a number order. And yeah. then um, hearts, I suppose. Yeah, you yeah. are you are doing some ordering. No, it's true. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's totally pointless. It's a way of checking that you have all of your cards after you've been playing with them. But you know, it's in case not you're going to really pocket necessary. the king of clubs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Not the most elaborate story, but certainly like a pleasurable short read. Yeah, I I don't think that we have too many more of these early Poirot stories left, actually. And there is a simplicity to a lot of them that I do appreciate. And I think that this one actually 
is still even a little more elaborate than some of these super, super simplistic ones that we've come across, which require a lot of invention when being adapted as part of the Suchet series, which is my way of transitioning into a discussion of our David Suchet adaptation that we have for this one, because they didn't really have to do that much, actually, in terms of inventing extra story. This one, very happily, also comes from the first season slash series of the Suchet series. We just recently covered The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, which, of course, is the very first episode. This is the ninth episode of 10, airing in that first season. 32 years ago, this aired in uh, March of 1989. This episode could have a child in high school. (laughs) It really could. I quite enjoyed it, as I do every single episode from those early seasons. The big change here is that they make it a film situation. Yeah, Valerie Sinclair, instead of being a dancer, is an actress. And Henry Reedburn, instead of being a theater impresario, is a studio mogul. But otherwise, it's pretty much the same. The episode opens up on Valerie Sinclair getting abused, basically, by him on the set, emotionally abused. He's, like, screaming at her to do her lines differently and essentially humiliating her. Mm -hmm. on stage and they actually do change that little seedy underbelly part of the story that we were talking about in terms of what Reed Byrne wants from Valerie Sinclair. Did you notice that? Yeah. What Reed Byrne is threatening her with is actually just blackmail. There's an extra layer of intrigue here in that Mr. Oglander, Valerie's father, was caught up in some sort of accounting fraud or money laundering business, some such. That's what Reed Byrne was using to blackmail Valerie, and he forced her to sign another contract, and he was just generally very abusive to her, but he knew that she was a star, and he wanted to keep her under his control, so um, he was using her family's shady past to control her, but there was none of the very, very distressing yet unfortunately believable sort of sexual aspect to the abuse that is truly happening in the Christie text. Right. But I mean, there's the control aspect is related to that. Yeah, it is. I mean, what I didn't like about it actually is that, you know, I think it makes for a paler version of Valerie's character. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's sad there's no Miss Lemon in this. A dearth of Miss Lemon. But there is Jap. We do have Jap. He's, of course, the inspector. And we also have gypsies, which is how they are referred to in the episode. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones who are suspected of having broken into Mon Desir and killed Mr. Reedburn, uh, as opposed to just that singular tramp. So there's a whole scene where Jap is making them take off their shoes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess it kind of widens out the mystery a little bit, but it's an interesting choice. Just in general, perfectly nice episode, just like the story. You know, oh, yeah. it's not superlative. I mean, we do get Hastings's extended disquisition on modern art, which I found particularly priceless. <laughs> you know, Poirot, there's a bit more to this modern art than you might think. It isn't just that they don't know what they're doing even if it might look like it. This is most unpleasant, Hastings. A pal of mine was telling me that what they're trying to do is to show all the sides at the same time. Save us the trouble of walking around the back. It's quite a clever idea, in a way. I mean, take this fellow, for instance. 
I mean, that bit might be his front and his back as well, if you get my meaning. It's not quite scientific, really. Trouble is, most of the time, they're half mad with booze and drugs, so what they see isn't all that reliable. It's the artistic temperament, that's the problem. There's also, I thought there was a great character moment for Suchet as Poirot when he's walking down a paved road, it's toward the end, and there's just like a bicycle that passes him, so he steps aside for the bicycle, and he's he's like walking on a street, right? I think it's the street between Mon Desir and Daisy Mead, and because he steps aside, he literally just steps in a, the smallest pile of dried leaves. They're not even wet, but the look of disgust on David Suchet's face when he looks down and sees, oh, I'm standing on leaves. I've just made contact with nature. And he's just so horrified and it's just so marvelous. Like David Suchet is just so good at playing those small moments and they make all the difference. I know. There's also like a lot of rando connections in this. Isn't like Hastings friends with somebody like on set? Hastings is friends with the director, which is why they are on the set at the very beginning of the episode. It just puts them into the action a lot sooner. As usual, the model that Christie relied on, which is quite realistic of Poirot just being called in to investigate, is just too tired and also too backwards looking, right? Where they have to be caught up on the case, which is perfectly fine in a short story and just not dramatic enough for an episode. So they always had to think up these creative and sometimes perhaps a bit too convenient ways to get them into the action from the yeah, get-go. they seem to have a lot of acquaint. Uh, they have a lot of acquaintances who end up like somehow inadvertently mixed up in murder. Indeed. The sets and the decor on this episode, we could say this about the early seasons in general, but I I noticed in particular on this episode that they're very mod. I mean, there's just so much mod kind of set design going on, especially at Mondesir and the movie studio and all of the offices of the movie people. And it's as stagey and staged as it often feels, especially in those early seasons. Like, they put a lot of money into the show from the very beginning, but sometimes those early seasons feel more like sets than the show did when they were doing the contained two-hour film versions where you really felt like they had built an entire world. Like, mm-hmm. I remember noting that in Peril at End House when they did the two-part Peril at End House, which I think it opens up the second season, and they, you know, they're at the hotel. You're like, oh, that's a, a soundstage. They're in a room right now that where they, like, hung a curtain to make it look like they're in the sort of dining area of a hotel, but I don't believe for a second we're at a hotel, even though it's this gorgeous kind of mod set design and it's very lavish it just doesn't necessarily it feels a little bit more stagey than i think the show became later on oh that's for sure but listen think of the fact that a few years before this came out was the partners in crime which by the way we have a lot of affection for sure sure but there there's um the one where they're in the nightclub where it looks like they got some dining room curtains and some (laughs) booths I mean, I say that with all the affection in the world. We actually really like those episodes. It's just that that was only a few, very few short years previously. 
most middle school theater productions have better sets. And then whenever they would shoot exteriors, you were like, oh, hello. Like, I'm in a completely different show right now. Like, like the film quality was different. It was so ridiculous. Right. No, and this so, show, like, no, I mean, this is, this is leagues and leagues, you know. Oh uh, my gosh. It's a different, a different world. So I, I feel yes. very much like, even when it seems soundstagey, like, it's yes. hard to criticize. No, and it's not, it's not even a criticism. I actually, there's something, there's something particularly charming to the staginess. And I usually only notice it when they are being particularly mod, you know, like with, with their set design in those early seasons. I love it. I sort of miss it actually in the more grounded kind of set design that they transitioned into, especially in the later seasons. So it's not a criticism at all. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that in general, I still have this affection for these early episodes. Sounds like you do too. And, you know, there's something just very comfortable about them. Absolutely. Given the last year that we've all had, I think I just continue to value these as much, if not more, than I ever have. Agreed. That is the king of clubs. We will be joining you next time again with our dear Monsieur Poirot. This will be a full-length novel this time. The Clocks is what we shall be discussing next. Very, very interesting. In the meantime, we would love to hear all of your thoughts. You can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Or if you would like to hear more of our thoughts before letting us know what your thoughts are, you can always check out our bonus content over on our Patreon account. That's at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and we would so, so appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.